Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. We're doing something uh, surprisingly... We keep doing military history and 20th century and stuff, but we've got something different today, haven't we, Alina? Oh, totally. Totally. I'm excited about this one. We're still in the 20th century, but tell us more. So we've got with us Hannah Wunsch, who is a critical care physician and historian who's written articles for publications like McSweeney's Global and Mail and Nature, which is a bit of a mouthful. But she's here with us today to talk about her first book, The Autumn Ghost, How the Battle Against Polio Epidemic Revolutionised Modern Medical Care. So we have another epidemic. Yay! Hi, Hannah. (laughs) Hello. Most people don't like hearing that part. (laughs) Oh, we're bored of those. Go away, Hannah. This is kind of a happy epidemic. Hopefully hopefully that makes it better. (laughs) A happy epidemic? Is there such a thing as a happy epidemic? Uh, I'm not sure there really is, but it's a a relatively happy story that I was telling. So. Rather than one that sweeps through the planet and just destroys everything in its wake, this is sort of a steady um, scourge, really, isn't it, that we needed to get our heads around yeah yeah well i mean the nice thing is we're talking about something that we don't have to generally worry about anymore polio um so that's always nice to be able to talk about a disease that's kind of dead and isn't gonna hurt anyone we know um so that's i find that quite pleasing um and then but yeah at the time polio i mean polio was a major scourge uh and um you know it, it in the first half of the 20th century it was sort of one of the things that terrorized parents in particular well, I think the first place my brain goes with polio, probably the only place my brain goes, is Roosevelt. Um, so pre-World War Two, you mentioned like it's terrifying for people. How dangerous is it? How likely is it you're going to get it? And and what are we doing to treat people? Yeah, so polio's, polio is sort of a funny um, disease. It's a virus. Uh, it's in what's called an enterovirus. And... Um, the one thing about polio was, is you know, statistically, it didn't actually kill that many people. Um, but there were a couple aspects of it that made it feel particularly scary. One was that, you know, the, the sequelae from it, what you got from it was paralysis. And of course, that was really visible for the people who did get paralysis. Um, and, and some of them died from it. And it mostly, particularly in the first half of the 20th century, uh, early parts of the 20th century, hit children. And so that was just, you know, devastating, obviously, for parents to have like a one-year-old or two-year-old just starting to walk. And then all of a sudden, 
boom, they are, their legs aren't moving anymore. And so it, it's a little bit sort of outsized in terms of the scare aspect of it, just in terms of statistically your chance of getting it and, and dying from it or even having paralysis from it. But there were these aspects to it that made it sort of front and center of everybody's focus. And then you mentioned FDR. And I think that also is important because Franklin Delano Roosevelt was in a wheelchair and uh, had had polio. Uh, or at least most people think he had polio. There's a little bit of debate. Um, and um, but, you know, he was really instrumental in actually bringing uh, a focus on it as a disease in terms of fundraising for it and support for it. And the March of Dimes, which was the fundraising arm in the United States, became just this huge fundraising effort and machine. And so actually the amount of money given for sort of research and, and care of polio patients was kind of way out of proportion to the number of people actually affected, but ultimately was incredibly beneficial because of course that was the money that really supported a lot of the research that led to the vaccine in 1955. So we're not talking about the whole world specifically, we're talking to one country, so we're going to be talking about Denmark. So talk us through how Denmark was prepared to face a new epidemic early in the 1950s. Yeah, so Denmark, or actually Copenhagen, which is where this epidemic is set, they had one infectious disease hospital called the Blydam Hospital, and uh, that had been built in the 1870s. They'd seen a lot of polio over the years, but no major, major epidemics. Um, and they did have one kind of world expert on polio, the head of the hospital, by a, a guy named H.C.A. Uh, Lasten or Henry Kai Alexander Lasten. And he had just hosted a major international polio conference in Copenhagen in 1951. And so he had seen a lot of polio in his lifetime as, as a physician, but um, kind of sporadic, not that many cases at once. And so after World War II, there were a couple of things. One was that they were in kind of recovery mode from the war. There wasn't a ton of money in Denmark, uh, as in all of Europe. And so at the hospital, they had one iron lung, and that was the mainstay of treatment for uh, respiratory failure from polio. And so just a, a quick primer, most people who get polio don't have any symptoms. Um, if you did get exposed to polio and got symptoms, it was generally nonspecific kind of flu cold type symptoms. And then about 5% who exposed would um, get paralysis of often a limb, and an even smaller percent would get paralysis of the respiratory muscles. And so that's where the iron lung that was developed in 1928 came in, because that provided a way to basically suck the chest open and allow someone to breathe, what's called negative pressure ventilation, and really provided the first support for polio uh, starting in 1928 and was the mainstay of treatment. Now, there was one form of polio that it didn't really help, and that was called bulbar polio. And that's when the virus hit the nerves that control kind of swallowing and coughing and ability to clear your secretions. And even with the iron lung, that was still 90% mortality. So at the Blydam, because they'd never had a major epidemic and they didn't have that money, much money to buy a lot of iron lungs, they had one, uh, which they did use, but they basically were not prepared for what happened, which was this massive uptick in cases starting in July and August of 1952. And um, the other part of it, though, was that what they were seeing was a lot of cases of bulbar polio, which they knew the iron lung wouldn't really help. But they were in the terrible position of, with one iron lung, of kind of deciding who got it and who didn't. And did they take someone out of it and put someone else in? Um, but they also recognized that even with the iron, more, even if they could have gotten more iron lungs, they wouldn't have been very successful at treating most of these patients. So it was a pretty horrific situation that they found themselves in uh, and sort of has echoes of, of COVID, not to not to bring that one <laughs> into the conversation. Yeah, I think that's, <laughs> it? 
ventilators all over again and picking who gets a ventilator. Yeah, yeah. Except in this case, the the ventilator, the negative pressure ventilation they had available to them wasn't actually very successful. Whereas, you know, ventilators were pretty successful in care of COVID patients. Sorry, I just wanted to jump in before we jump into the next question. Is is to do with uh, this iron lung. Is there a modern sort of version of the iron lung? Is there something that we use nowadays that can mimic the same sort of, um, apart from the ventilator? Yeah, that sounds really stupid. No, it's a great question because these are things that nobody really thinks about, right, until you're really sick and you suddenly need one. Um, So interestingly, I visited St. Thomas's Hospital in London uh, before the pandemic. They actually still have a couple of the old iron lungs still functional and uh, they they keep them running because they do occasionally have a pol- an old polio patient who has difficulty breathing, something like that, where they prefer to be in an iron lung than use modern ventilation. But the basic answer to your question is no, we don't use right now this negative pressure ventilation approach. And that's because the way the iron lung worked was it sealed the person in at the neck. It was like a giant tube. And then the air got sucked out of that tube. And by doing so, it forced the chest wall to rise and the lungs to expand and forced air into the lungs. So in order to do that, you've got to keep this seal around the body and create to create that negative pressure. So nurses hated them because they literally put portholes on these things to allow them to stick their arms in to like help clean the patient and, and move the patient. Um, but you couldn't break that seal around the body. And so we haven't, people are experimenting with modern versions of this, where you kind of strap something around someone's chest and abdomen to kind of create this seal and and suck the, you know, the the chest and abdomen kind of uh, open. But um, it's not a, it's not a particularly effective way to care for someone. And so in fact, the big revolution that comes out of this one epidemic in Copenhagen in 1952 is the recognition that doing the exact opposite pushing air into the lungs rather than sucking the lungs open was a much more effective and efficient way to help someone to breathe and so that's what we use today i really want to know as well like because i just want to outline for people so you said that it didn't kill people like covid did and people might be sitting there thinking like well really it's an epidemic you know it's an illness it's bad but it's not like but what does living with the after effects of polio mean for people in the early 1950s yeah i got to meet actually a lot of the survivors from this 1952 epidemic and talk to them about precisely that their experience of of living with polio and for everybody it was different for some they recovered if they had had paralysis they recovered full function um for others they had lifelong paralysis often of like an arm or a leg or both their legs and um it, it was like it was a life long full of rehabilitation and strengthening and going to rehabilitation hospitals and having to adapt in different ways and they all have led very full lives um, and many have married had children uh, many have gone to university but they've all many of them have had to adapt in different ways unable to do certain things um, having to make sure they live in in places where they can uh, kind of have you know if they have a wheelchair for instance that is wheelchair accessible so it really does change people's lives to to deal with the aftermath of polio and then the other thing is there were some people who never recovered respiratory function. And so they remain dependent on ventilators for the rest of their life. And of course, that is life changing in terms of uh, what your life looks like. And and a lot of them were able, 
in in Denmark in particular in Copenhagen to leave the hospital ultimately and live in a kind of special facility of apartment building they built to accommodate people who were attached to ventilators still. Um, but that's that was huge change for people. I've been given the question with the names and uh, I know Alex has done this on purpose. <laughs> so done this on purpose. You know what? This is because, right, if Nikolai hears this and I screw it up, like we're, we're writing together, like this is the slut, my business partner. I can't possibly put it. <laughs> so, so you're putting it on me. Right. Okay. Buy you some vodka next time you're in London. Decent vodka as well. Grey goose. Right. Okay. Are you ready? Please don't want Go me. for okay. it. Okay. <laughs> so who were Ernest... Tria, Mork, <laughs> and Bjorn. Is it not Bjorn? So maybe it's Merch. I don't uh, know. Yeah, you know, we can speculate a lot because the reality is none of these names sound like anything you or I would say if you actually pronounce them in Danish. <laughs> so <laughs> it's all a little bit made up. I would say Ernst Trier Morch and Bjorn Ibsen. Those are kind of the, well, at least American. So you're just going to completely dodge the video. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah something like Bjorn but yeah uh, I, I mean I can tell you this was the torture of working on this book was I don't speak Danish and trying to deal with all of these names and like all this stuff written in Danish was was incredibly challenging um but uh right, what yeah. I'm gonna do is when I come back to edit this I am now gonna edit Nikolai in saying it properly so <laughs> okay so that's how it should be said but who were they? So, so Ernst Trumorch, and and apologies to Danish speakers out there because that's not what it sounds like in Danish. Um, he was the first anesthesiologist in Denmark, um, and believe it or not, that was in the 1940s. So before that, there was nobody who was actually trained as an anesthesiologist working in Denmark. Um, and like anesthesia was given by nurses, medical students, the secretary to the surgeon, basically anyone who could be like roped in to help out would give anesthesia. So it was not a great situation. And then he comes along and he's interested in anesthesia and he gets some training in it. And um, he's also a fascinating character because he he's a resistance fighter in World War II in Denmark. Um, and uh, a lot of the doctors involved with this story in the 1950s were in the resistance in World War II. And um, I took like, I went down a rabbit hole of kind of Denmark and the war and uh, what they all did. Anyway, that's an aside. But he um, he was influential because <laughs> Bjorn Ibsen uh, was, a, was junior to him and he was also a doctor and he expressed interest in doing anesthesia. And so Ernst Trier-Morch said to him, if you want to learn anesthesia, you need to go study either in the UK or in the United States where anesthesia as a specialty is, is more developed. And so uh, Bjorn Ibsen chooses to go to Mass General Hospital uh, in the United States, in Boston, to train for a year in 1949. And this is a kind of really influential year for him. And he's kind of the, the hero of this story. Um, and there he learns anesthesia. Uh, but he also gets exposed to a really different version of medical culture than he's used to. So apparently in Europe at the time, it was really, really hierarchical and um, and kind of junior doctors did not speak up. And so he got to Mass General and he was shocked to discover that the opinions of the junior doctors were being sought out. And he had this observation. He said that initially he thought there were a lot more complications with surgeries 
But then he just realized that no, there seemed like there were actually the same number of complications, but they actually just talked about them because they were interested in learning what they could from the mistakes or problems they'd had, uh, as opposed to kind of sweeping it under the, the table and just sort of saying, oh, you know, these things happen. So he had his eyes opened to sort of a different way of thinking and functioning in medicine. And this ended up being really important because he's the one uh, who gets asked to help when there's this epidemic and nobody knows what to do. And he comes in as the one who uh, suggests that they try this this new approach, this positive pressure ventilation approach to helping people to breathe. Okay. What is outside of Denmark? How are people responding to this epidemic? So outside of Denmark, it's actually a bad year in a lot of places for polio. So the United mm-hmm. States has a, a pretty big peak in polio. Um, so, you know, I think it's 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 three years before the vaccine and everybody is desperate for a vaccine. Everybody is really scared by polio. And this epidemic, though, in, in Copenhagen does make it into the papers in the United States because it's so bad. Um, and it's noted that they're getting overwhelmed with polio. Um, so everyone's kind of watching. But, um, you know, nobody had much to offer besides the iron lungs as a way to to treat polio. So there was kind of a nihilism about it as sort of, we didn't know, people knew how it was spread, but didn't really have a great sense. You know, kids would be told like, don't eat the apples off the ground, that somehow that was going to give them polio. And people would shut their windows in summer because they were still worried, even though it's not transmitted through the air, that maybe this would keep their kids safe. Um, So there was a lot of misinformation about the disease. And uh, there was just a lot of sense of hope you don't get it. And if you do, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, And so that was really the state of things in 1952. What is the most ridiculous reason that you have found that people would use to say, oh, you'll get polio if you do this? Um, Oh, that's a great one. Um, I mean, not eating an apple off the ground is 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 definitely up there. Um, that was apparently like a major kind of Danish thing. Um, you don't really get that one in the United States. And then um, if you go, I mean, if you go back in time to 1916, there's a huge epidemic in New York. That's the first really big U.S. epidemic. Um, and they had all kinds of crazy things. They actually slaughtered 70,000 dogs and cats in New York City because they were convinced that maybe dogs and cats were transmitting polio to people. So that's probably, I mean, maybe not the craziest, but the most horrific in terms of sort of response to it. Um, But I I think the other one is like sealing kids in during the summertime that I talked to a lot of people who remember their parents literally not letting them go outside and it would be sweltering hot, 90 degrees, and all of the windows would be shut because parents were convinced that this would keep their children from getting polio. So maybe that's the craziest. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So what are the conditions like? Let's go back to the hospital itself. Um, what are the conditions like and how are they reacting initially to the epidemic? So in July and August of 1952, they're starting to see, or really by mid-August, 50 cases a day coming into the hospital. And ambulances are just pulling up one after another. Uh, about 10 to 15 of these patients every day had pol- had respiratory symptoms, like were you know, struggling to breathe. And a lot of them had that deadly form of bulbar polio. Um, and so apparently, like, ambulances were stacking up uh, outside the hospital. The doctors and nurses were having to come out to the ambulances to kind of triage people because they just didn't have any more room in what would have been their emergency room. Um, they had filled up all of their infectious disease beds. They had some sort of general medicine beds, and these were all being converted to polio beds. Um, it was chaos, and uh, really distressing to the people who were working there, who were seeing this. And the the thing about polio in Scandinavian countries, in the U.S. and Canada, it was referred to as the summer plague that peaked in July and August. But in Scandinavian countries, the peak was in the autumn. Um, and this is where I, I stole the title of my book, The Autumn Ghost, from a writer who um, wrote about polio in Sweden. And he wrote about it in, the ni- in 1940s. He described it as the autumn ghost because it would sort of sneak in and then kind of hit badly in, in the autumn months. Um, and uh, they knew, therefore, that like mid-August, they weren't even close to the peak of the epidemic. So apparently really depressed, really distressed, working incredibly hard, of course. You know, they didn't, they were overrun with patients. Um, and so that was the state of things uh, by mid-August 1952. Sounds a little familiar from recent years. Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, it was a it was a bad scene. So we've touched on the modern aspect of this, but what did they learn about respiration at the time? Remarkably, they knew very little about respiration. That's the kind of shocking part when you go back. You think, oh, this is only seventy years ago. How do they not know basics? And one of the basic things they didn't understand is literally if you so if you breathe in, you breathe in oxygen. And when you breathe out, you breathe out carbon dioxide. That's sort of the exhaust of the body. And they had no concept that if you kind of don't breathe out enough, that the carbon dioxide builds up in your body. And this can actually be lethal. Um, and so they thought that the virus was just overwhelming the body and people were dying from like virus getting into the brain, getting into the kidneys, and that the signs and symptoms they were seeing at the end of these people's lives was that. Um, and what happened was Bjorn Ibsen got invited in, uh, and they didn't really know what he could offer, but they sort of were desperate. And someone had suggested he was a smart guy who might have something to offer. And he comes in and he looks around and he's actually shown the patients with polio. He's never taken care of a polio patient in his life. That's the amazing thing. And he looks at them and he's told this sort of story about why these people are dying. And he says, actually, I think you just need to ventilate them better. Uh, and so he proposes a tracheostomy, a little tube through the neck into the lungs. 
and then uh, hand ventilation, bagging the patient where you literally blow air into the lungs and let then let them exhale. And so by doing that, you blow off that carbon dioxide that's built up. Um, and so this is the part like, you know, you think like, well, that's kind of basic breathing. Right? <laughs> How is it that they kind of missed this fact? But, you know, kind of these things get passed down, this received wisdom about what's going on in, with a disease or in medicine or really in anything. And the cool thing is he was able to come in with this totally different perspective. He worked in the operating room and uh, recognized that he just needed to do what he did in the operating room when he put someone to sleep, which was like, let's help them to breathe better. So they try this on one little girl by the name of Vivi Ebert. Uh, who's 12 years old, and he shows them that it works. We actually have her medical record, which is kind of amazing to see the minute-by-minute -minute care that he gave her. Um, and then they start doing this to everybody who's struggling to breathe in the hospital. Um, and so it's this remarkable moment when they kind of have what we call an end-of-one experiment. They try it on one person, it works, so they do it on everybody else, and they, they chose the right intervention um, because they were able to drop the mortality from 90% at the beginning down to about 10 to 20% uh, at the end of the epidemic. So like a massive improvement in care. Um, and then they let the whole world know about this, right? So that people could understand what they'd done and how important this was and successful this was as a way to take care of patients. So specifically, what do they learn about respiration? So they learned that um, that basically respiration is really important um, and that um, they needed to find a way to ventilate people at sort of a steady state and that without that, that people would die and that this was sort of sparked this whole new revolution in learning about how does the body deal with oxygen? How does the body get rid of carbon dioxide? What's the relationship between how fast or slow you breathe and all of these things? What's literally the pH of the blood? Because carbon dioxide is an acid. So when it builds up in the body, the pH drops in the blood. Um, they never thought to test the pH of the blood before this. And so understanding how breathing then relates to what's going on in the rest of the body, really a lot of it came out of this epidemic. There had been physiologists who kind of understood some of this stuff beforehand, but none of them were working at the bedside. None of them were really um, able to articulate to a wide audience of doctors why kind of giving this respiratory support was so important. So I'm quite interested in how these patients lived in, in the hospital, what was their life like day to day? Was it like a big communal family or, I don't know, I've got various different visions in my mind <laughs> of different types of pandemic. Everybody's in one room to everybody's in individual, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's a bit of a chaotic mess in there. Tell us about that. Yeah, so, you know, some things are similar, some things are different. One big concern when people first arrived was infection risk um, and transmission. And so initially, each patient was cared for in a, in a single room. Um, and if they needed ventilation, they actually used the medical students of Copenhagen sitting at the bedside, hand ventilating them 24 hours a day. And that was really the heart of the care. Um, and so once they were no longer infectious, they were moved into kind of two-person rooms with um, somebody. So there, there would be two ventilators, students ventilating and two patients. Um, and apparently this was important because you can imagine hand ventilating someone in the middle of the night, it's the risk is falling asleep. So they would apparently throw like wet sponges at each other to keep keep each other awake. Um, and there were a lot of people kind of roaming around to help like nurses and doctors and other medical students. So I think to your point, like there's a lot of activity 
at any given time during the day and they had physical therapists coming in. And then when they were much more stable, the patients would be moved to a, a bigger ward, um, kind of what we would call Nightingale wards, right? Sort of lots of beds in a row, your, your image of, of a hospital in the 1950s. Um, now, one crucial piece is visiting hours were unbelievably restricted. And so um, someone showed me the card, it's actually in the book, of what the visiting hours were. And it was basically two hours a week. Uh, and so families, parents, because a lot of these were kids, would literally only see their child two hours a week. And in the beginning, when they were uh, infectious or worry about that they were infectious, they wouldn't let the parents in at all. And there's these like heart-wrenching photos of the parents with their faces up against the windows of the hospital and the nurses would apparently push the beds over to the window so that the parent could look in and, and wave. And, you know, these are like two-year-olds, four-year-olds, like really little kids. And they were often in the hospital for many months and some of them even years. And so there's this, this kind of crazy experience that many of these people had growing up where literally they were, they were away from their families for years at a time. And then their siblings weren't allowed in at all because of the risk of infection. And so there's also stories of, you know, siblings sitting outside waiting while their parents went in to visit. Um, and then finally, when they were sort of well enough, the kids being brought out to see their siblings and these kind of uh, heart-wrenching reunions um, uh, described of kind of getting to see the beloved brother or sister again. Um, so, so that was, you know, the kind of visiting piece. And then the other part though, was like the nurses lived at the hospital or in a building adjacent. And so there, and a lot of the doctors lived on the grounds of the hospital. It was a real community there. Um, they were obviously a really, uh, kind of tight knit group working there and people described it as a really positive place to be working. Um, I think once they kind of figured out how to do all this. Um, and so the overall experience was positive for many, particularly of the students who were involved and the nurses involved. Um, but, um, you know, but not everyone survived. And so there were some also heart wrenching descriptions of, you know, telling parents that uh, a child had died and things like that. So it's still a hospital. Um, I also did find a photo of it wasn't the Lydam Hospital, but another hospital in Copenhagen of Christmas time, because a lot of the kids were still in the hospital at Christmas and the nurses with them by the Christmas tree trying to make it festive. And so they really did, you know, do their best to try to make it a, as positive experience as possible. So you mentioned that this is an epidemic story with a happy ending, um, because it is. What is the legacy of this particular polio epidemic? I mean, like we've been talking about it for the last half hour sort of thing. It's big, isn't it? Yeah, it's enormous. So Bjorn Ibsen, the anesthesiologist who kind of figures out how to do this, the very next year takes all of everything he's sort of seen and learned. And what he recognizes is there's a way of helping people to breathe isn't just useful for polio. It's useful for really anyone who has any problem breathing, whether it's pneumonia or they've had like trauma to their chest. And he opens what we would consider the first kind of modern intensive care unit at a neighboring hospital in 1953. So we're at the 70th anniversary of that event. And uh, he really shows that if you bring together everybody, specialized care and all of these sort of devices to support people with their organs and, uh, and 24 hours kind of tight surveillance that you could really make a difference in terms of the number of people who could live. You know, before this, if you had like a heart attack or pneumonia and you were in the hospital and you got worse, you were just 
basically left to die. You'd be given morphine to make you comfortable. But suddenly there's this ability to intervene and help support people until their bodies recovered in a way that was just revolutionary. And so you get modern intensive care units and this spreads throughout the world over the next 10, 20 years um, and uh, still isn't everywhere in the world. Of course, there are some places that can't afford modern intensive care units, but for really all high and middle income countries, access to intensive care is like part and parcel of modern medicine. Um, and certainly if you talk 70 years worth of intensive care, uh, hundreds of millions of lives, if not billions of lives have been saved by these interventions over this time period. Um, in many ways, probably many more than the polio vaccine itself, um, although that, you know, that gets the focus of what the legacy of polio. Um, and so that's why I felt this was like an incredibly important story to tell because it is, it, it it impacts all of us, not every day, because most people don't have to deal with the intensive care unit on a regular basis, but certainly most people in their lifetime will have some interaction with an ICU, either themselves or someone they love who needs that kind of care. We've already touched on this because I asked the question about the iron lung, but does this bring out a whole new kind of technology and wealth of knowledge for the future of the ventilation machines that we know today? Yeah, actually, it's it's an important question because the answer really is yes, in that for the last 70 years, the world has used this positive pressure ventilation, modern ventilators where we hook someone up to a machine, it pushes air into the lungs, or we, you know, BiPAP is the same concept. It just straps a mask over the face and pushes air in. Um, but there definitely are people working on actually thinking about going back to negative pressure ventilation in a kind of more modern way, um, where you wouldn't stick someone in a giant tube and sort of seal them off completely, but to find ways to help people to breathe by strapping some sort of contraption over their chest or abdomen and kind of augmenting normal respiration in a way that might help. And one of the problems, although positive pressure ventilation is the way we take care of everybody with respiratory failure, um, it's not normal breathing, right? We don't breathe by pushing air into our mouth. We actually breathe air in this negative pressure approach by having our, our chest sort of suck the lungs open. And so you sometimes can get damage to the lungs with modern ventilators because you can get these high pressures that sort of shear the tissue and cause damage. And so there's actually real interest in saying, well, maybe we need to go back to some form of that older way of ventilating as a way to actually help people to breathe in a way that's kind of safer and better. Um, it's still in preliminary phases, but I wouldn't be surprised if in 10, 20 years, that's something you'll see uh, a kind of again as part of modern medicine. So we are kind of coming full circle in a way. Um, and then, you know, the other piece, though, is the the vaccine piece, right? And the fact that, um, you know, the recognition that we, we need to be vigilant about vaccination rates, because what we definitely don't want to go back to and don't want to see in the future is another round of an epidemic like that ever when it, with, you know, for a disease that we absolutely have a good way to protect people from getting it. I was going to say, Alex, do you mind by taking uh, your polio vaccine? No. When do you get it? What, I should should I remember this? It is as a baby, but there's different forms. There's an injection, and then there's an like a sugar pill, or you know that some people get depending depending on where you are. Um, in in the UK, it's all injection. 
And so you probably wouldn't remember because it would have been like one of a million injections you got as a child. <laughs> but, I had um I had a updated dose. Uh... Yeah, I mean they they do give boosters, so that's very possible. But yeah, I mean if you go back to the, and talk to people about the 1950s, everybody remembers getting their polio vaccine for the first time because it was such a big deal. And people describe how their parents started crying when they read in the newspapers that there was now a polio vaccine. Um, I mean, it was such a big event that they were going to be protected from this. And I think it's kind of a little hard for us to imagine. I mean, I think some people felt that way about finally getting a COVID vaccine, but um, it, it really is extraordinary how much people remember that experience of being vaccinated. So we've talked lots about the patients, about the doctors. Did you, you mentioned, I guess it's easier to find a patient because they might have been really very young in the 50s when they had polio. The doctors, by very definition, are already have going to have been adult in the 50s. So are any of, were any of them still alive for you to talk to? Yeah, I mean, you're right. A lot of the people I talked to who were the polio survivors uh, were babies or really small children in the early 1950s. And so often they didn't even have memories of being in the hospital. Some of them, it was only sort of the aftermath they remembered, although some of them did have some vivid memories. Um, but for the doctors, the frustrating thing was they were all dead. And so um, one of the challenges was sort of finding their voices and learning not just kind of what they did, but who they were and what they felt and uh, and thought about these things. And so I was able to speak with a number of their children and grandchildren, who, of course, gave me tons of information. Uh, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, but then there was one one way that I really got to know a bit more about them. And um, I was in Copenhagen doing research for the book and I was exhausted. I've been researching forever and uh, I was kind of wrapping things up. And there was one patient who I'd emailed with and who had actually, he was a documentary filmmaker by the name of Niels Franzen. And, and he'd done a, a documentary film about his own experience of the polio epidemic in 1952. And I'd seen the, the, the film and I sort of thought, oh, I've emailed with him and I've seen his film and, you know, do I really need to go see him? It kind of seems like overkill. Um, and then uh, one of, there's this great, amazing American nonfiction writer, Robert Caro, who does incredible re detailed research and is sort of revered for the amount of research he does on his books. And he's recently written and talked about his kind of process. And when he was quite young, uh, a journalist said to him, make sure you turn every page when you do research. And all of a sudden, I heard his voice in my head saying, turn every page. And so I made an appointment to go see uh, Niels Franzen. And I showed up and he said to me, you know, who are you interested in, in learning about? Is it the patients or the nurses or the students or the doctors? And I sort of said, everybody. And he said, well, you know, when I was trying to figure out what my film was going to be about, I thought I might talk about the doctors. I didn't really in the end, but I did all these interviews with them that I taped back in 1998. Would you be interested in that at all? And, you know, my eyes are bugging out and my jaw's on the floor and I'm thinking, oh my God, how have I, you know, not known about this until this moment? And so I, you know, of course said yes. And and he very kindly uploaded all of these films um, so that I could access them. And uh, the frustration was they're all in Danish. So I had to spend time getting them transcribed and then translated. And so it was a while before I could even know what they were saying. But for me, it was an opportunity to see you know, see these people and they were, they were all old, but you know, you, you've just got a sense of their 
character and personality, hearing them talk. And then, of course, they provided all kinds of details and insight into their own stories and um, their thoughts at the time that really became the heart of my descriptions of, you know, what they were thinking and feeling when they went through this experience back in the early 1950s. So that was an important lesson for me. Um, and I'm very grateful forever to Robert Caro for, um, you know, admonishing all of us to turn every page and doing this sort of research. Hannah, this has been so much fun and a bit of a positive spin on a on an epidemic, unlike COVID or any of the others that we've uh, we've covered during the podcast. Can you just remind our listeners the name of your book? My book is The Autumn Ghost: How the Battle Against a Polio Epidemic Revolutionized Modern Medical Care. Very much written for the general public, um, and so I hope people will find it of interest. I'm sure they will. We will put it in the History Hack bookshop. Thank you so Thank much, you. Hannah. Good luck with the book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your interest in it. Uh, this is the moment where you just get to get drunk now. No <laughs> one's in expecting you to be intelligent and sell copies at this thing. This is like your time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am looking forward to <laughs> to celebrating with with friends and others and uh, kicking back a little. <laughs> so, thank you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 